Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's time once again for another episode of Living Hope, a weekly journey designed to provide hope, inspiration, and education for those living with pancreatic cancer. Sharing the real-life stories of those really affected by this deadly disease and how they deal with it on a daily basis. With our New Year host, who's brought new hope to us again here in our, in our second season of Living Hope here, uh, the woman who's been on many seasons of this journey herself here, Roberta Luna. Hey, Roberta. Hi, thanks, Paul. I think I've seen many moons pass. Yes. And just want to wish everybody a happy new year. I can't believe we're the last, uh, was it, we're in 2022. We're in the last 20 years. I know, yeah, right. It just kind of flew by. And when did you, for just for those who are tuning in for the second episode, when did you get your diagnosis? What I, year? I was diagnosed April 1st, uh, 2002. So I will be 20 next, well, oh, this April. There you go. I see, wow. I'm already see, in the wrong year. There's so. some living hope for you right there. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you for that. Today I'm... Whoa, I'm very happy to have with us a special guest, Colleen LaSalle. Thank you, Colleen, for joining us and being our first guest for the year for 2022. I'm very happy to see you and have you here. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive into anything? Sure. Let's see. My name again is Colleen LaSalle, (laughs) and I'm a resident of Long Beach. I lost my husband, John LaSalle, it'll be 12 years ago this April, when he had, he was just 45 when he passed away. We have two daughters who are now in college, and well, one in college and one out of college. <laughs> and um, yeah, that's pretty much in a nutshell where we are. <laughs> well, thank you for being here and sharing your journey. I know sometimes it can thank be you. difficult, but it's it's our thought is we, we need to put a face to this disease. It's not statistics. There's people involved. There's mothers, fathers, husbands, children, and we need to put that face to that and forget, not rely so much on the statistics, but know that we're dealing with real people and it's very devastating when we go through this, when we when we either get that diagnosis or when we're, you know, the, the caretaker or um, we're taking care or helping somebody through it. You mentioned, in fact, I was going to ask you how old John was. He was 45 when he was diagnosed? He was 44 when he was diagnosed. Uh, he was di- diagnosed in December, uh, December 3rd, and then he passed away the following April. So four months and six days. And yeah. in that time period, he had his birthday, his 45th birthday. Now, I was in my 40s when I was diagnosed as well, and that was part of the actually problem because doctors didn't see it happening. They said I was too young. Did John get that same reaction from his doctors? He did. Because of his age, he was actually selected for a study. The study was for um, a a drug called Tarceva, which is now a drug that is widely used. So it, it was difficult because when he was pulled into the study, we were told right away that he was not gonna survive this. Um, that this was not this drug was not going to help him, but it would help hopefully future patients. Which, to me, looking back on it now, I could say that that was hopeful for other people. Um, yeah, I'm sorry that kind of grabbed me because I really yeah. didn't understand or know previously that he had been on the test for Tarceva, and actually, I used Tarceva for many years to keep my uh, my tumor at bay, and it was. Um, very successful so um thank you for that i just like i'm sorry i kind of lost it here a little bit before a few minutes it's yeah it's but it's nice to to hear from somebody who was part of that study because there are people like me and others who did you know um thrive from that so thank you thank you for that um did he show or did he have any symptoms before he was diagnosed 
uh, in hindsight, which is clearly 2020, um, so my husband had a backache for four years. He was going to a chiropractor, and the chiropractor didn't do x-rays. And it wasn't until one day his, it was an odd series of events. I was at work. He had been at work and called me part of the way through the day, which was not usual. Um, so he's, he, I asked him what was wrong, and he said, oh, my power went out at my company. They sent everybody home. And I said, oh, okay, what are you going to do? He said, oh, I'll probably play golf or something, whatever. <laughs> Watch TV, not have the kids underfoot, right? So he called a little bit later, and he was, I thought he was joking at first, and he was crying. And he said, I, he goes, my my back hurts really bad. I'm laying on the floor, hardwood floor in the living room. So I said, um, I said, you know, you need, you probably should go to the doctor for that. He said, no, no. He goes, Colleen, he goes, I don't know. He goes, this backache's not like the backache I've had. It's, it just won't go away. So about two hours later, he called me and he was absolutely hysterically crying, which this man never showed his pain, even through the a lot of the thick of the bad stuff towards the end. Um, and he, I said, what's the matter with you? And he said, Colleen, it's my stomach. And he had tremendous pain. And he could only um, describe it in a few words. Well, of course, I want to get, get on the freeway as quickly mm-hmm. as possible. We have a friend who lives two doors down who works from his home. So he was able to drive him to uh, Long Beach Memorial. And I met him there like 35 minutes later. And we had had, before this time, there was some blood work that came back kind of funny, which I just said, this is absolutely, he's 44. This this is silly. He, he can't be sick. He can't be sick. He didn't believe it either. So they ruled out through, um, we went to a hospital that did an endoscopic ultrasound. They missed the tumor. So this pain that I was just describing where he was laying on the floor and everything, um, this was about two weeks after that. So when I got to Long Beach Memorial, they said, um, they said, they they moved, manipulated his legs in a way he was gripping the sides of the bed in pain in the emergency room. And I was, of course, played doctor that day. And they said, honey, we think he has pancreatic cancer. And I said, no, he doesn't. We just, <laughs> we were just told that there was no tumor. He, they said, I'm afraid he very likely has pancreatic cancer. And it was a movement of a leg that they could tell, among other things, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then it was the beginning of the end, so to speak, because that was right before Thanksgiving. So he spent that Thanksgiving, which was his last Thanksgiving, in the hospital. And they had to wait to do a spinal biopsy to for the tissue to come back. Um which was in his L2, which is the, the vertebrae that was affected. It came back, and he was formally diagnosed on December 3rd. Mm-hmm. And then we couldn't get in to see this particular doctor who was um, the chief at the time of the of a hospital um, until the beginning of January. And at that time, he was put in a study. But he, we were told from the beginning it's advanced stage 4 and that they initially gave him three years with chemotherapy, one year without. And John had chemotherapy and was gone in four months. 
What type of chemotherapy did they use? Is that with the Tarsiva or was it something different? They did a combination. They did infusion and then he had the Tarsiva, the pill. Um, and it, they said it was really for palliative care because he was vomiting so much, which is typical of the disease. I mean, it was 24-7 and he had gotten so thin. And it's just absolutely incredible in a terrible way to see somebody who's 6'1", 205, shrink down to less than 100 pounds in four months. It was, if I hadn't seen it with my own two eyes, I wouldn't believe it. Yeah, it's devastating. I watched my dad go from 170 pounds, he was six feet tall, to 70 pounds. Mm -hmm. I remember last thinking he looked like the pictures from the Holocaust survivors. So yeah. it's devastating to see that when, I mean, yeah. men just don't get sick. You know, they're strong. Yeah. They're our, our rock. And when we watch them, especially our dads or husbands, you know, yeah. it's very devastating. There was one one thing in particular, this one thing that happened during this journey, his journey was um, where it reverberates that. I was with him when he was having his infusion. He was very, very, very sick at this point. I think this was like in Feb late February, early March, and he passed in April. And I had brought my laptop. They, call they called me from uh, at work, and they said, you need to come because somebody else, a neighbor had brought him that day to chemo because they tried to mix it up a little bit to make him feel like things were still somewhat normal. So, because he worried because I was worried. Mm -hmm. So I went to work. They called me, and they said, he, they're saying he needs a blood transfusion. You need to come to the hospital. So I rushed to the hospital. I brought my laptop from work. Um, I, while he's sleeping through his chemo and his um, and transfusion, which took a, many hours, his birthday on December 20th was on my laptop screensaver. And so this was, his birthday was only like two and a half months before this happened. And his chemo nurse came and she saw the picture and she said, oh, what a lovely picture, who's that? And I said, I looked at her and I said, oh, that's John. And I'm pointing to the bed and she said, excuse me and I said it, that's John it didn't mm -hmm. even look like him and it was two months later yeah it's very altering and um, I remember seeing a lot of and I, I I had wished at the time sort of that I had taken a photo of my dad just so that when we go to advocacy day and talk to our representatives yes. about why we shouldn't you know cut funding and why we need to increase more funding for research to show them I wish I could have shown them but I just I wasn't thinking I, mm -hmm. and it wasn't it's a memory I have I don't need to be refreshed by that photo but it would have been something very um, stern and something people could have looked at and really had the same uh, the, the awe effect like oh my god I can't believe that's the same person I did that my first advocacy day yes I remember and and it was shocking but it needed to be told I showed a picture of him well and I showed a picture of him four months later and I said, this is what it does. This is what this disease does. So this is why you need to listen because it's important. And I know that was difficult for you to do, but I yes. do thank you for doing that because it is important. They need to see that if they don't understand what we see and what we're going through, yes. they're not going to act and whether it's stories like what we share, the photos, the different things, I do have to say at least they're finally getting on board and they mm -hmm. are, you know, for the most part, are responsive for us. So that is very good news and good to hear. But it, it, it's still, it's, it's just so devastating. 
I don't know. When my doctor told me my, the news, um, you sort of know before they even say it because, you know, they're not looking at you in the mm-hmm. eyes. They're, they're walking in, looking at the floor. He grabbed my hand, never looked at me in the eyes, and said, you know, I'm sorry, it is pancreatic cancer. How did the doctors tell you, and, and John, did they tell you together? Did they tell him first? Or are you separately? How was that handled? No, they told us together. John was facing me. I'll never forget it because I can still... St- I can still feel it and see it mm-hmm. when I close my eyes. He, we were holding hands. Uh, he was in a chair facing me, and they told us, and they made it very clear he was terminally ill, and they told us how long they thought he had with chemotherapy, which was way, way off because it got very aggressive and moved very quickly. Mm-hmm. And they just said, I'm very sorry, and they put their hand. They, she was as compassionate as possible, and um, walked away and left us in the room. And I couldn't even cry. I was so upset. I, because I, I was so worried about him. I just had to, I, I can't say pretend, but I had to just put myself in the back. I, mm-hmm. I can't imagine what he was feeling because our kids were um, 10 and 16 at the time. And I remember John looking out the window at the hospital. And then the anger came in the very John LaSalle kind of way, which was, um, he was just just such a wonderful, tender-hearted man. And he looked out the window and he said, I cannot believe this is the way I'm going to go out. And I said, John, they don't know everything. They don't know everything. You know, there's miracles that will happen. John and I are both very spiritual, religious mm-hmm. people. So I thought, you know what, there's miracles every day. We're going to grab one of those for you. But it was telling our kids that was the hardest part. And that was what I was going to ask you. I know you had the two yeah. girls, the two daughters. How did you tell them and how, how did they respond? Very differently because they're very different in, well, different individuals certainly, but at different points in their um, life. So we, after we were told, we went straight to our pastor who had been to some of my appointments. Even though he had been to the appointment, John's appointment where they missed the tumor when he had endoscopic ultrasound. So he was there for that joy of that day when we were told that it wasn't what we thought it was or what it ended up being. So we went there and then so our pastor, our associate pastor and a very good friend who worked at church who was also friends of our family were there with us and we greeted the kids when they got home from school so we were all sitting there talking and our kids our youngest came in and she sat in his lap because she could sense what was wrong or that something was wrong not knowing of course what it was and she sat in his lap and she said mommy what's the matter and I said well we need to talk to you and your sister so my oldest came home and she got automatically defensive we sat them down and told them and I, I asked John how he wanted to do it, and he said he wanted to say it. So he did. Our oldest actually got up and ran out of the house and down the sidewalk. Our youngest sat in his lap and put her arms around him and said, Daddy, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. We'll take care of you. <laughs> and then our oldest had to be consoled, obviously, and pulled back because it was she was in absolute denial. Um, but they were there 
through the whole thing and what was interesting to me is when he was on hospice and at the end and the bed was in the living room they would come home from school and walk up to him and throw their backpacks on the floor like it was any other Thursday and <laughs> give him a kiss and just say dad I'll, I've got to change my clothes I'll come right back out and talk to you so it became something they somewhat got used to but obviously mm-hmm. not really yeah finding out a loved one has cancer brings a lot of changes in the family yeah. um, yours and then the ultimate death of, of John you had to be both mother and father mm-hmm. to the girls was that also during the illness or did that was that more after the illness that he that you had to kind of assume that double role I would say both it was hard because I had to try to keep things as normal as I could but the optics for the girls they knew something was horribly wrong because he he was physically changing and he was so violently ill all the time so we, it was things like he he wanted to eat but he couldn't eat so i would purposely um close all the doors in the house to the kitchen um if I was making something and I wouldn't make anything that smelled good like bacon <laughs> or something because I didn't want to make him feel bad that he couldn't eat it yeah um, it was uh, the, the help of our incredible neighbors and our church family and friends that because our family doesn't live in the state um, that helped us through at that point too because I still had to work I did take a considerable amount of time off um, and you, people donated vacation, which was amazing. Um, but it, it still was the, largely the responsibility of the kids was on me because he, he was unable to get even get out of bed. Yeah. yeah so you were ultimately John's um, primary, I would say, caregiver. Yes. And just to give a description for those who may not be aware, a caregiver is someone who is providing most of the care for the survivor patient day-to-day care. But then it can also be neighbors who help or, you know, friends, family, um, anything like that also are caregivers, but you were primary, his primary caregiver, you gave him his care every day. Doctors and nurses receive medical training on the job as well as, you know, when they are going to school on on patient care. What kind of training or advice did you receive on being John's caregiver? I have to say none. Unfortunately, that's what I, I was afraid. It's one of those uh, things we don't want to learn by experience, but that's pretty much how we learn to be that caregiver. I know I was the caregiver for my mom and my dad, and it's something that you know there's no guidebook. I think we need to write something up or do something so people can kind of know what to do. Be- I, I'm sorry. I think that what did kick in for me is my mom genes, right? Mm-hmm. because he mm-hmm. became almost childlike because he wasn't able to walk. He was unable to get to the bathroom by himself. He couldn't drive. Um, there were days where we had to go in and actually put a mirror in front of his mouth to make sure that he was breathing because yeah. he he couldn't sit up by himself anything, especially like the last month and a half. He couldn't. We have two steps to go down the back steps to get to the car. And I remember trying to just get him down those two steps to get to the emergency room because he he had a blockage and he was in pain and we thought he was we were going to lose him that night. And just that was hard. So I had to be, I, I had, 
at that most of the time I was alone. Um, so I, I, I had no choice, but you, you can do amazing things when you have no choice. Very true. I, like you say, you become the mom's kicks in. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I took care of both my mom and dad, it was that it's they were always my care, you know, givers through life. And then suddenly that that picture turned and I had to become theirs. And it's difficult to assume that that role, but especially, yes. you know, for a wife to suddenly become the parent to her husband. I'm sure it's yep. very, very difficult. You've gone from being a caregiver to your husband fighting, you know, both of you fighting pancreatic cancer to a volunteer serving as the caregiver chair for Orange County Affiliate. Yes. You help and support others that are going through this disease. Why? I, I mean, this disease is so devastating that many times, you know, we see those that are affected once they, you know, the end comes or whatever happens, they distance themselves and want to run as far away from that as, as they can. Why do you stay involved? I wish that if the tables had been turned, that I would have had somebody to talk to in a caregiver role. It didn't exist then. Um, actually, even PanCan was very new. Um, hadn't been around all that long. I just wish I had somebody to just ask basic questions to or some place to go. But I also believe, as my girls and I, who also are involved, um in advocacy efforts, et cetera, um, is the very least we could have done or that we can do for my husband because we will not let anyone forget him. We won't. He was he was here. He was important. He will always be important. And I will tell you, especially my youngest daughter, We she, both of my kids have been very affected by an un- incredibly large amount of people, teachers and teaching staff that they know in the Long Beach School District that have been affected, many of whom are no longer with us, affected by pancreatic cancer. And friends of my youngest daughter have come to her when they've had a family member um, that had been diagnosed. And to me, that says holy cow, you know, <laughs> advocacy advocacy is important, right? Those people are reaching out to her, to me, saying, oh, my God, we just had this diagnosis. I don't know what to do. Where do I call? Well, I didn't have that, and I would gladly fill that role for friends. For My daughter has strangers come up to her when we have a purple bag at the grocery store and ask questions. And to me, it's that's the way it's supposed to be. If you cannot change the outcome, you can change the future. Very true, and we thank you, thank you for that. And um, it, it, it's it, just very quickly. Do you have any words of wisdom or anything that you would like to share with other caregivers or people that are going through through this? Family members, I have to say, love yourself. Take time for yourself even if it's five minutes, even if you have to go in a bathroom and cry, or if you have to just talk to somebody, please do it. Please take care of yourself, but try to get sleep where you can get it. Please eat sensibly. Please know that you're, what you're doing is important for the person that's affected, but you are important, and it's a really, really tough gig that you didn't ask for, but you're doing your best. 
Right. And there's no right, no wrong answers, I should say. Just whatever you can do to get yourself through this in your family is what you need to do. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny you, you mentioned earlier about not forgetting John. And um, it's something that we started doing um, because of Paul's suggestion, which I really love and appreciate. It's um, dedicating the show to somebody affected by pancreatic cancer. And there's an African um, proverb that I really love and I think is very fitting. It says, as long as you speak my name, I shall live forever. Mm -hmm. So today's episode, Living Hope, is dedicated to John LaSalle. And I want to thank you, Colleen, for coming and sharing your journey with us. And also for those, um, January is Clinical Trials Awareness Month. And though I know and I'm sorry that Tarsiva did not help John, it has helped many of us. And I thank you for doing that and I thank him for taking that on and doing that clinical trial. I know it's a difficult decision, but it is something that we all need to look at and think of that as the first option, not not the last option. Clinical trials are the only way that we get the much needed um, treatments that we need. So thank you for doing that. And as a Tarsi user, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I really do appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you for being here with us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you. You've been listening to Living Hope, a weekly journey designed to provide hope, inspiration, and education for those living with pancreatic cancer. Sharing the real-life stories of those really affected by this deadly disease and how they deal with it on a daily basis. If you or someone you know needs information, there is a source. There's lots of them, actually, but this is one we're sending people to. Patient services at 877, the number two, PAN-CAN. That's 877 and the number two, P-A-N-C-A-N, for the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. If you or somebody you know would like to share their stories, please, we're always looking for people to tell what they've really gone through or going through. Together, we'll get through it. Thanks for listening. For all of us here at the Orange County Talk Radio Network, We invite you to join us for this new season of Living Hope, Your Journey with Pancreatic Cancer, streaming live from the University of California Irvine's Beale Applied Innovation Center.